If you got a Bible this morning, you want to open to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and uh, man, just a good day, man. Father's Day is a good day. Appreciate you guys being here this morning. We want to, want to get in the Word of God a little bit this morning. As much as, as all these other things are good, and they are good, man, dedication, skits, uh, snacks, all the things, man, it's important that we get in God's Word uh, because, man, we can be fed from this. And so this morning, again, let me just reiterate, happy, happy Father's Day. I know, I know some of you right now, like our, our brand new fathers, I think of Corey, and man, I'm excited for him. And uh, man, within the last year, some of you guys have became fathers, and it's just like rocking your world, and that's awesome, and, and praise the Lord. And some of you have been uh, blessed with multiple children, maybe over the last couple of years, and so God's increasing your, your quiver, if you will. And again, man, God the Father... Uh, is, is carrying of that title, right? He, in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3, the Bible says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. And so God carries that name, but not only is he the Father, if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, he is our Father. You know, the Bible says in Romans 1 and verse 7 that God is our Father. Those that know him personally have a personal relationship with the Heavenly Father. And so because of that, man, we are blessed people. Amen. We have a blessing in the fatherhood of God in our life. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the father factor. And that's the title of the message this morning. And I, and I know that for some people, as we talk about the home and as we talk about fathers, I know that that can be a touchy subject. I understand that. Because some of us may have grown up in a home that, that man, you, you had an absent dad or, or, or a dad that that man just caused some hurt or wounds, and that can be a struggle. When we talk about the fatherhood of God, you connect it back to maybe a, a father that didn't model that necessarily. Other people would have a very positive experience, right? And say, man, I was brought up in a home where I have a great relationship with my dad, and he modeled uh, God the Father in so many different ways. And so either way, I just want you to know, man, God's grace is sufficient for us uh, this morning, some of you, this may be the first year or, or, you know, within a few years of you losing your father in the sense that he's no longer physically on this earth. And, and today may be a very tender time for you as you remember your dad and you miss your dad. And, and listen, my prayer is for you this morning. Uh, my prayer is that you're ministered to this morning. There's just something about the role of a father in the family. God knew what he was doing. God knew what he was doing when he put the role of a father in the family and he established it and, and the significance of it and the responsibility. And so as you're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 1, let me remind you, Colin last week introduced us with an entire overview of the book of Judges. And, and, and I don't know how you preach through a whole book of the Bible in a sermon, but it, somehow he did it. And, and he gave us an overview of the book of Judges and that helps us understand the context of the book of 1 Samuel. And, and what Colin taught us last week was that the nation of Israel was in the promised land, but they became apathetic to God. In other words, God called them into this promised land, the land of Canaan, and God told them, hey, when you get in there, you need to drive out all these enemies, right? Uh, the, all the, all the, the Hittites and the, all the ites, the termites, all those different things, all, all the all the ites that were in the land of Canaan were to be driven out. But man, Israel got apathetic toward their enemy and they got apathetic toward God's commandments. And because of that, it led them into apostasy. And the same thing is true in our life. When we get saved, there's things that ought to be driven out of our life. 
There's a sanctification process that God wants to bring us through. If we get apathetic toward God's word, we will begin to slide in areas, even as followers of Christ. And and Israel fell into apostasy because they failed to drive out their enemy. They began to serve the false gods of the land. They began to worship other gods besides the one true God. And Israel became susceptible to those outside influences. And same true in your life and same is true in my life. Man, if we don't separate ourselves wholly unto God, we get apathetic toward his word, we end up in apostasy. And then the third stage that Colin taught us about was that Israel ended up in anarchy. And the reason they ended up in anarchy, because the Bible says in Judges 17, in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right, listen, in his own eyes. So Israel basically set the standard for themselves instead of allowing God's standard to be their authority. They just did what was right in their own eyes. And listen, all all we have to do is look in our churches today, and there is a sense of apathy toward God's word that does lead to apostasy that will end in anarchy. And churches will just do whatever they want to do, however they want to do it, with no biblical authority at all. The reason that's important for us to review is because that's the context of 1 Samuel. So as we open the pages of 1 Samuel, it's during the time of the judges. As a matter of fact, Samuel will later become the last judge of Israel. And so, and so Colin showed us last week that as we study the book of 1 Samuel, there's a lot of contrast. You're going to see a lot of contrast. God compares some things And as you compare men versus other men in the book of 1 Samuel and children versus other children, and you can begin to compare those things in the book, you see an amazing contrast. Some people reflect God's glory and walk with God. Some rebel against it and turn from it. It, It's an amazing book of contrast. And so this morning, we are going to look at the first few verses and by God's grace, talk about the father factor because God in the very opening chapter gives us a contrast of two fathers right out of the chute. And so let's look at these two fathers together. First Samuel chapter one, verse one, it says, there was a certain man of that place of Mount Ephraim. You know, you couldn't say it any better. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And when the time was come that, that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah, He gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. You know, Cody, if if you were here for Mother's Day, Pastor Cody talked about a tale of two conversations, and he actually used a portion of this scripture to talk about Hannah on Mother's Day, and Hannah is certainly worthy uh, of preaching on. She's an excellent example of a godly mother in the Word of God, but this morning, we're going to look at the other half of her relationship. We're going to look at her husband, Elkanah, and we're going to see 
There are actually in this passage two fathers that are mentioned, Elkanah and Eli. And as we look at these two men, we're going to see a very distinct contrast between the way they fathered and the impact that it had on their children. And so I want you to join with me as we study this, okay? And so if you're taking notes this morning, the first person we're going to look at is Elkanah. And we're going to see that Elkanah is a picture, a type in the Old Testament of a faithful father. He is going to be an example of a faithful father. What's interesting is that as we get into verse 1, God gives us a lot of information about his family. And that goes in your second blank, Elkanah's family. As a matter of fact, when you read verse 1, it tells you about all of his fathers that came before him. The son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth. And, and four generations of men are mentioned before Elkanah. God tracks his lineage back at least five generations because God wants you to know where he came from. And that, maybe you just read the Bible and you say, oh, that's insignificant. Okay, well, that's very interesting because when we get to Eli, God doesn't give us any lineage. Actually, the only lineage that he gives us is all the way back to Aaron the priest, all the way back in Exodus and Leviticus, the priesthood. And yet God wants you to know that this man was a father who had fathers. He has a generational influence in his life. It, it also says that he's a, a pathrite. And, and if you study that word in the Bible, there's some other key men that were also a pathrites. Uh, in, in Ruth chapter 1, there was a man named Elimelech, and, and he had a wife named Naomi, Naomi and he had two sons, and, and he was of that same uh, lineage or same tribe. In 1 Samuel 17, Jesse, the father of David, was also an apathrite. And so, and so, man, Elkanah comes from an interesting lineage that God has a lot to say about. And so this is a family man. He, he has an, a, an impactful family. But secondly, in your notes, this man also has some failure. He has some failure in his life. And I want you to go back to verse 2. And let's spend just a minute talking about that. Because the Bible says that he had how many wives? He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. I want you to understand that Elkanah is not a perfect man. As a matter of fact, I think that you can prove biblically he made decisions that created turmoil in his home. You say, well, man, we're, we're in the Old Testament context. God allowed that in the Old Testament. And I know we're in an Old Testament economy, and I know we're in a kingdom of heaven economy. But God's design for marriage from the very beginning is one man, and let me just say it politically correct for our culture today, one naturally born man and one naturally born woman. That's God's design for marriage. And if we go all the way back to Adam and Eve, God took one rib and made a woman. He didn't get two, three, four. He didn't get the whole side. <laughs> he took one. And, and so God's design for marriage is always one man and one woman. And as you read the context of the passage, the one that's mentioned first is Hannah, which leads me to believe that she is the one that Elkanah loved and she is the one that he married first. I believe that that would be the case. And Penina is mentioned second and, and possibly 
Because the Lord had shut Hannah's womb, like many other instances in the Bible, Elkanah tried to fix the physical problem through physical solutions. But, but, but man, God is the one that shut her womb. You can't fix physically a spiritual problem. And, and so however it shook out, he now introduces this second party into his marriage. Penina becomes an adversity to Hannah. And, it, and she becomes an adversity or an adversary to Hannah over the issue of childbearing. And so if you go back to, to 1 Samuel 1 and verse 6, it says, it says her adversary, Hannah's adversary, provoked her sore for her to make her to fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And, and listen, that word adversary, when you run it through the scriptures, you're going to land in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Because you have an adversary as well called the devil, right? He is as a roaring lion. He walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And so within this man's home, and because of probably his decisions, he has cre created turmoil. He's loving one woman, but has brought another party in, and she's had multiple children. The Bible says she has sons and daughters, by the way, none of which are named in the Word of God. None of them are named in the Word of God. But now... Now there's a problem. Now there's turmoil in the home. And so you know the story if you've read 1 Samuel. Hannah begs God for a son. And God answers her prayer. But I want to just make the point that that son isn't just Hannah's son. Yeah, I think a lot of times we read this passage, we say, man, Hannah desired a son and got a son from God. Well, that's Elkanah's son too. And that's the part of the story that I think many times we, we forget, we miss. It's Elkanah's son... And man, listen, Elkanah ultimately, in spite of his failure, is going to faithfully and sacrificially give his son to serve the Lord. You say, what do you mean by all this? Well, what I mean is that your, your failure is not final. Okay, we've all failed. Some of us had failed in the, in the areas of relationships. Maybe we failed our children. Maybe we failed our spouse. Okay, Elkanah failed. But man, he got serious about God. And because he chose to continue to worship and to sacrifice to the one true God, God used it for his glory. And I just want to encourage you, especially men today, man, maybe you look at your past and you see areas of failure. Okay, okay, own it and move forward in faith. Man, your failure doesn't define you. Your failure doesn't have to be final unless you let it be final. Elkanah didn't let it be final. He said, okay, man, God, here's where we are. And God can move through these situations and, 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 and this circumstance to still get glory out of my life, okay? And so Elkanah had a failure. But then number three, Elkanah had faith. And, and I believe as we see his, his life unfold in the pages of Scripture, there's some things that we can learn from him. Number one, Elkanah had enough faith to lead his family to worship it says in verse 3 that this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So here's this imperfect husband and imperfect father that still chose to worship a perfect God. And, and man, listen, that gives me encouragement. Man, because when I look in the mirror every morning, I, I'm reminded of how imperfect I am and how many failures I've made. But listen, God is greater than all of that. 
And so in this time of Judges, you need to know that Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle was set up. When Israel went into the promised land, after Joshua led them through the Jordan, they established the tabernacle in Shiloh. That was the place that God chose to dwell in his tabernacle. We get that out of Joshua 18 and verse 1. It says, the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. Again, in Judges 18, 31, it says, at that time, the house of God was in Shiloh. Now listen, the time of Judges, again, man, if you read the book of Judges, Israel gets right with God, they fall into apathy and apostasy and anarchy, and God brings a judge to deliver them, and then they walk with God for a minute, and then they fall off, and it's just this rinse-repeat cycle of, of, of walking with God, falling into sin, falling away, God chastening them, and God restoring them. It's important to note that, man, during the time of the judges, most of Israel was not worshiping God. But this man was. This man led his family to Shiloh. He, in a time of anarchy, because of apathy and apostasy, there's still a man doing it right by God. And he's doing right by his family, and he's pointing them to the Lord of hosts and to the place of proper worship. And I think you already know where the application for that is. How about us? How about us, man? Because we live in a time of apathy and apostasy and anarchy, and yet God is looking for imperfect men to still worship a perfect God and to lead our home and lead the people in our home to the place of worship and to sacrifice unto the God of Shiloh. And listen, you don't have to go to Canaan to do that today because the house of God isn't in Israel. The house of God, according to Timothy, is the church of the living God. It's this corporate body, this corporate gathering that we all can come to to worship and to sacrifice. And so Elkanah prioritized worship. He modeled sacrifice and he led his family to do the same. Men, we have to lead our homes. We have to lead our homes. The impact and influence of a man leading his home to worship God is unmistakable. It's unmistakable. And listen, God may have used your wife or your child to get you here. Praise God for that. But now it's time for you to lead. It's time for you to lead your home. Lead your home, lead your family to the place of worship, corporate worship, this place, and, and, and let your children see a man that's not perfect, but a man that loves a perfect God. That's all they need to see. That's all they need to see. And so, and so Elkanah did that. He led his family to worship. Number two, he had enough faith to lead his wife to wean his son. And I wish we had more time to talk about this, but, but we don't. But, but let me have you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, because, because you know the story. Hannah's prayed for a son. God said, hey, or, you know, Eli said, hey, God's going to answer your prayer. She still had to go home and, and be intimate with her husband for that to be accomplished. And so, and so as much as God wanted to answer her prayer, it still required intimacy with her husband. And so then in verse 20, as this child is growing, and still a babe, it says, it, Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come, at, about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. 
And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned. And then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. Do you guys remember the story? God said, or she told God, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him right back to you. And so, and so, and so Elkanah, it's time to go worship God. And, and I, wish, I wish I had time, man. But can you just see the dynamic of this marriage? There's open communication. The husband says, it's time to go worship. The wife says, hey, listen, this kid's not weaned yet. But when he's weaned, I'm going to take him and leave him. And so there's openness in the marriage. There's communication in the marriage between a husband and wife. They're not against each other. They're for each other. And so in verse 23, it says, Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth good. Tarry until thou hast weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. And, and, and I just want to make this point that, man, Elkanah led his home properly, biblically. And it doesn't mean that you rule or dictate it. It means you have communication with your wife. But it also means that the child doesn't become the center of attention for everybody. Here's what I mean. Man, when, when, we, when we had Nora, you know, uh, man, our world got rocked. She's my oldest. She's our, she's our first kid. And man, we just were, were surviving. We didn't even know what day of the week it was, so to speak. Uh, but man, I was leading a ministry at my home church and, and, and preaching. And, and so, man, we had to take a couple of weeks off, right, to, to kind of navigate, man, this new life when God gave us this kid. But man, listen, I had responsibility. And now as a mother, my wife had responsibilities. And, and, and so, man, I, I had to, to do what God had called me to do, to preach and teach his word. And my wife had to do what she was called to do. To, to feed this kid until ultimately she was weaned. Does that make sense? And so there was a separation, so to speak, in our home. We weren't separated in the sense of, man, my wife's doing her own thing, I'm doing my own thing. No, we were together, but still accomplishing everything God had for both of us. You see, there, there, is, there comes a time, I believe there comes a time, especially with the complexity of a newborn, man. Hannah couldn't go to the house of God. Well, that didn't keep Elkanah from worshiping. You see, her responsibility changed, and yet he had to fulfill his responsibility. And I think biblically, there are times when a husband, you say, man, this ain't even Mother's Day. I know, but it should be. Let's just have a day where I can preach to both. How's that? There comes a time when a husband and wife may have to split because of a newborn child. Some of you are experiencing that right now. One's in the house of God. One is at home feeding a child. But here's the point. The child doesn't dictate the direction of the home. The husband does. And the word of God does. And Elkanah went up with all of his house except for Hannah and Samuel. And biblically, man, listen, can I just speak to the moms for a second? You got a tough job. Because only you can do what God's called you to do in this area of weaning a child. It's a mother's job to wean a child. It's a, it's a mother's job to wean a child. It takes intentionality and direction. And man, the danger is for a mom, if you're not careful, and, and for a dad, if you're not careful, you can use your children as an excuse not to be in the house of God. And that, man, I get it, because we, we've lived that. You know, when, when I, Nora was eight months old, 
when God called us to Huntsville. And so I started preaching on Wednesday nights and uh, Sunday mornings. And man, Wednesday nights were tough. And I told my wife, hey, you're not coming on Wednesday nights. And, and that was a decision we had to make for our home because it was like, man, we got an eight-month-old. We're burning gas both ways to Huntsville. The kids' schedule's all jacked up. It's just hard. And so there was a, there was a couple of months, man, where we were kind of like on Wednesday nights. We weren't together. And God gave us grace. But I had to do what God called me to do, and I had to lead my home. And, and part of leading my home was giving my wife the space to do what God had called her to do, to, to wean our, our daughter, right? Okay? But listen, that's not perpetual. In other words, there comes a point where the child can be weaned, and then things get back to normal. Psalm 131 and verse 2, the Bible says, and the psalmist David is using his his. He's using the example of a weaned child. He says, surely I've behaved and quieted myself. As a child that is weaned of his mother, my soul is even as a weaned child. And again, that verse gives us some characteristic of growing children, both physically and spiritually. Psalm 131 says, there comes a point when a child should be able to behave himself and quiet himself. As a child that's weaned of his mother. And, and again, man, the, the same physical truth applies spiritually. Spiritual children need to be weaned intentionally. We have a process called discipleship. And, and, and it's a process, not a program. And, and it's to bring immature Christians to maturity. And listen, if you're discipling someone, at some point you have to have the intentionality that you're not the milk provider for that person. That that person has grown enough spiritually to behave themselves rightly according to the Word of God themselves. Are we okay? But man, but man the, the same danger can happen spiritually as it does physically. Man, that child, that disciple, that person I'm investing in can become the center of the universe. And now everything revolves around that, that person. And, and the truth is that's actually dangerous because it takes our focus off of God and puts it on them. And so just in a spiritual maturing process, there, could, there comes a point where a child spiritually should be weaned and behave and quiet themselves biblically. So should physical children, man. And a mom is tasked to do that. And so Elkanah led his family to worship. And man, he led his wife to empower her to wean their son and the result of that was a son that was now available to be given to God. It gives a little insight into our homes, doesn't it? Even in the Old Testament, man, God paints a beautiful picture. And so, and so Eli, man, we, we got to hurry. You're not listening fast enough. But man, he, he, had, he, had a, he had an amazing family. Man, he had some failures. But I think he was full of faith in some areas. And he, and he made an impact in his family. Now, let's flip the switch. And I want to contrast now to Eli. And very quickly, with the time we have left, I want to look at the other father mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It says, The two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there in Shiloh. As much as Elkanah is a picture of a faithful father, a man full of faith, even in his imperfection, Eli is going to be a picture of a fleshly father. He's going to be a picture of a man that's controlled by his flesh 
and as such will have a negative impact and influence on his children. Again, let's look at his family, Eli's family. We know from the Word of God that he's in the lineage of Aaron. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, the Bible tells us, this is later in the story, but in verse 27, it says, there came a man of God unto Eli and said to him, thus saith the Lord, did I plainly appear to the house of thy father when thou were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I, and did I choose him out of all the tribes of my people to be my priest and to offer upon mine altar and to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? And, and again, Man, this is years and years after the exodus from Egypt. So who is God talking about? Well, what he's doing is he's going all the way back and he's talking about Aaron, who was a Levite. You, you find that in Exodus 28. I'm not going to read the text for time's sake, but, but it is in your notes. God called Aaron, the Levite, into the priest office. And God gave him an ephod and God tasked him to offer sacrifices and offering. And so Eli is of the lineage of the Levites and the, and the order of the priesthood through Aaron. But man, God doesn't mention anything else about him. No, no lineage, none of his fathers, none of his grandfathers, none of his great-grandfathers. Best, best God could do is just kind of say, hey, he's, he's part of the family of Aaron. That's it. God, God's absent, absolutely silent on the issue. Secondly, we see Eli's failures. Because Eli also is a man full of failure. Man, and again, humbly, we all fail. But man, his failures were significant. Number one, he let the lamp of God go out. Look at 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 to 3. Man, he was called to be a priest in Shiloh in the house of God. And with that became, came certain responsibilities and requirements and expectations and in verse 1, it says, The child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days, and there was no open vision. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. Here it is. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. You see, during Eli's tenure as priest, he let the lamp of God go out. And if you look at Exodus 27 and Leviticus 24, God says that, man, listen, that lamp should burn always. It's not allowed to go out. As a matter of fact, it was a commandment. Don't let the lamp burn out. It has to burn continually. You say, what does that lamp point to? I believe it points to the Word of God. Psalm 119 and verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Eli had a responsibility physically and spiritually to keep the perpetual lamp of God burning in the house of God. But he let it go out. And now he's blind. He can't see he has a physical condition that represents his spiritual condition. It would be like a ministry leader in a church letting the Word of God not be the authority anymore. It would be like a man leading his home that doesn't have a biblical authority for his home. The lamp of God goes out. Can I just tell you that when the lamp goes out, the, the light goes out. And when the lights go out, man, there's no power. No power in your home. 
No power in a church. A church that dances around the biblical authority that God's given us, that excuses it away with commentary and speeches instead of authoritative preaching from God's word. Man, the light has gone out. And there is no power, and there's blind priests offering sacrifices that they don't even know what they're doing. And man, as fathers, if we're not careful, and as Christians, if we're not careful, man, we'll let the light of God go out in our life. The Word of God will have no effect, and we'll become blind. We'll lead our homes blindly, we'll lead our children blindly, we'll lead our wives blindly, because we have no power, we have no light in our life. Man, Eli is a picture of that. Man, he's absolutely irresponsible. Number two, Eli is dependent on someone else to hear from God. He's dependent on someone else to hear from God. He can't hear from God anymore himself. He now has to have outside support and supplementation. 1 Samuel 2 and verse 27, it says, there came a man of God unto Eli, and he said, here's what God said. Somebody else had to come tell Eli what God said. In 1 Samuel 3, man, Samuel is going to get called by God. And and God calls Samuel outside of Eli. As a matter of fact, Eli is so blind spiritually that it takes three times for Samuel telling him, hey, did you call me? To recognize that it's God calling Samuel. And later, it's Samuel whom God uses to communicate his words back to Eli. Man, this dude, this dude's a piece of work, man. But let me just tell you something. He's in the house of God every day. He's got children. He's doing religious things. He's a priest. He's got no power. He's got no ability to hear from God. Number three, man, he had some wicked sons. Eli's sons were wicked Look at, look, at, uh, look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, Now the sons of Eli, and, and again, for time's sake, but man, let me just give it to you quick. The sons of Eli were sons of Belial. Well, who's that dude? I thought Eli was, was their father. Yeah, they were. He, he is their father, but they're also sons of Belial. Look what it says. They knew not the Lord. And if you read through 12 through 17, man, these dudes would go in and when there was a sacrifice or an offering made, God made provision for the priesthood to partake of that offering. It gave them sustenance through the offering. But these guys went beyond what God had allowed and said, hey, you know what? What's in the pot is not good enough. Give me more meat so I can roast it over fire. They abhorred, the Bible says in verse 17, the offering of the Lord. These were wicked Wicked men. All you have to do is study that phrase, sons of Belial through Scripture. Every time they're mentioned, these are wicked men that hate God and are against God. And so these sons, man, they didn't even know God. And yet they were priests in the house of God. Are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? You go back to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, verses 12 through 13, or 12 through 15. And it talks about these children of Belial. And man, listen, they draw away people to serve other gods. God says that's an abomination and it should result in judgment and destruction. If you go to Judges 19 and verse 22, it talks about certain men of the city. They were certain sons of Belial 
They're knocking on the door, these Benjaminites, and they're wanting this man to come out so that they can sexually abuse him. These men are sexual perverts. And in the context of Judges 19, they're homosexual or bisexual. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, the Bible says concerning Eli's sons, that he heard that all his sons did unto Israel, how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle. Perverts. Wicked men in the house of God with the position of a priest. In 1 Samuel 25, it talks about man Nabal was a son of Belial, and he was such a son of Belial that a man couldn't speak to him. A hard-headed, resistant man to any kind of truth and resistant to God's man, David. Yeah, but they're priests. They're not. They're wicked men. Eli had on his hands sons that were his sons, but man, they're sons of Belial. Mocking God, mocking God's offering, mocking God's house. And in some weird, perverted way, he allowed it to continue. Is that not a failure? Let me, let me just speak to the men for a second. Man, if you let that mess go on in your house, that's a failure. I'm talking about your home. That's a failure. God put you in that place of authority and position and influence by God's grace to keep it straight. And man, some of the stuff that we tolerate in our homes, well, well, it would make me question whether we're men of faith or men of failure. Well, you don't understand my spouse. You don't understand my children. I don't, man, I don't. But I do understand this book. By God's grace, man, we're called to lead it. We're called to make the hard decisions. So Eli is a man of failure. And then number three, Eli is a man consumed with his flesh. He's a man consumed with his flesh. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, when this man of God shows up to Eli to rebuke him, man, he's like, hey, listen, didn't I call you out of the, the, the lineage of Aaron? Didn't I call you to be a priest? Look at verse 29, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 29. Here comes the rebuke. Why kick ye, wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and my offerings, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. And, and just a couple things real quick in your notes. Number one, man, Eli mocked the priesthood that he was a part of. God established the priesthood. God put him in the priesthood. And man, he mocked God. He mocked the priesthood. He wasn't there by his own volition. God chose the, 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 the Levites. God chose the lineage of Aaron. God established the altar. It was God that chose the ephod. This was not some self-made office. It wasn't some self-designed religion. It was based on the authority of God's word. And man, Eli mocked it. Number two, he kicked at God's sacrifice 
and offerings. And, and by the way, it says in that passage, wherefore kick ye. And, and again, I know a lot of people don't like the King James Bible, but there's a reason that ye is in there. Because ye is plural. In other words, why, Eli, are you and your sons kicking against my sacrifice and offering? It's plural. It's all-encompassing. It's not just a condemnation to Eli, but it's to his sons as well. Instead of respecting the sacrifices and the offering, man, he mocked and kicked, kicked, kicked against them. You know, sacrifices in the Old Testament were required because of sin. That's a sobering thing when someone brought a sacrifice. It, it meant they're trying to get their life right with God, and they brought what was required. That's sobering. That's serious. And this dude had no gravity concerning his attitude toward that. And when people brought offerings, listen, offerings were given out of free will. And there was no right attitude toward that. He kicked against God's sacrifices and offerings. You know what? If we're not careful in this place, your familiarity with holy things will be your downfall. At, at some point, when we come to this place and don't esteem the things of God as the things of God, whether it's the worship of God, the praise of God, the offering of God, the service to God, if we don't esteem it as that, that'll be our downfall. The minute you just say, oh, it's just church, you started sliding. It's just church, it's God's church. Which means it's service to God and offering to God. It's preaching that honors God. And man, listen, Eli kicked at God's sacrifices and offering. Number four, number whatever. Eli made himself and his sons fat with the offerings of the people. Man, he was self-serving instead of God-serving. He was self-indulging instead of self-denying. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 4 and verse 18 that he was a heavy dude. He was heavy. Eh, let's don't preach on weight because we got cupcakes over there. But I'm just saying... I'm just saying, man, him, he, he and his sons made a, 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 a regular partaking of God's sacrifices for themselves. And then, and then here is probably the most, damning, the most damning condemnation that God gives him. He honored his sons above God. It says he honored his sons above God. And man, my goal is not to, to hurt us today, man. So what you have in this picture is a sharp contrast. You see, Elkanah gave his son to God for service. But Eli took from God to give to his sons. Do you see the contrast? Man, he, he's totally the opposite end of the spectrum. And he put his children in a position of honor above God himself. Man. We would never say that we do that out loud. But man, sometimes our actions, sometimes our actions prove that. If we esteem God higher than anything else in our life, that means he gets our time, our talent, our resources. He is the priority and the focal point of our life. But man, as dads, as parents, if we're not careful, we'll put our, our children in a position of honor that exceeds even God himself. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so what a sharp contrast between Elkanah and Eli. Both were fathers of sons who ended up in God's house serving. 
That's very interesting to me. Both of these men, Eli and Elkanah, are in the house of God together. One came as a worshiper to sacrifice unto God. That was Elkanah. One came as a mocker to those who, who needed ministering to. And if, if you were to go back in 1 Samuel, man, when Hannah shows up, Eli sees her praying and her mouth's moving, but no words are coming out. And he automatically assumes that she's drunk. What a carnal dude. He's mocking people that need to be ministered to. Both Eli and Elkanah, man, they're on opposite sides of the same offering. You see, Elkanah brought an offering as an act of worship. And Eli took of that offering for himself. He didn't regard holy things. And at the end, both had children who were impacted by what they saw. Samuel saw a father's faithfulness to God and his family. Hophni and Phinehas saw a father's flesh and self-desire to make ministry about himself. And man, they followed suit in their own life to the point they didn't even know God. So the question for us is, man, where do we fall on that spectrum? Man, let's, let's by God's grace desire to be like Elkanah, right? Man, man what kind of father are, are we individually? Man, what kind of legacy are we leading in our home? So here's, here's three questions very simply and we're done. Number one, how do we lead our home to worship and sacrifice to God as a father? That's a good question. How do we lead our home to worship and sacrifice to God? Is God honored in our home as, as the priority? Or do we esteem and honor our children or our spouse higher than God? How are we leading our home to worship and to sacrifice to God? Number two, how are you leading your wife, men, how are you leading your wife to fulfill her biblical responsibilities? You know, you know Hannah had a responsibility to wean their son. And God, God empowered her to do that through her husband. There was open communication, and he empowered her to do what God had called her to do, to wean that child. How are we leading our wives and our family in context of the house of God? And then number three, man, and here's, here's, the, here's the question especially as men. Man, do we come to God's house for what we can get? Or, or do we come to God's house for what we can give? In other words, what is God really worth? Is God worth even your children? Is God worth your sacrifice and worship? Amen, man, he is, he is, he is. So let's honor him above everything and let's not despise him. And let's lead our family to serve him and to worship him. Man, let's don't be an Eli. It's easy to be an Eli. Because he's in the house of God. He's religious. He knew, the, he knew the walk. He knew the talk. And on the outside looking in, you would... Or on out, yeah, yeah, on the outside looking in, man, to Eli, you would think, hey, that's the dude. That dude wasn't the dude. Elkanah was the dude. Because he had a right walk with God. And so, man, let me just encourage you this morning, man. You can be like Elkanah, not perfect, but full of faith towards your God. Let's honor God with our life. Let's lead our families in a way that please Him for God's glory's sake. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get up out of here. Father, thank you, God, for your word.